Great to see you. Again, if you're watching online, let me add my welcome to you. It's great to have you joining us. Let me uh, just briefly mention, some of you know that Kay, my wife and I, uh, lead uh, trips to London and Israel and Jordan. We're doing another one in October, and it was full, but we now have two spaces. And so if you want to come with us, uh, come see me, and uh, that will be an amazing time. So we finished our Healthy Minds series. Uh, how many were here last weekend? That's great. How many are here this weekend? Very good. Well done. And uh, this weekend is a standalone message, which basically means that um, whatever the teaching pastor feels um, we should be talking about, that's what we're going to talk about. And the subject that I've chosen for this weekend is called, Let's Talk, Let's Talk. <laughs> Healthy conflict is what we're going to talk about. Now, before we jump into a brief reading from Acts chapter 15, uh, let me set some context here. I want you to think about two missionaries. Their names are Paul and Barnabas, the apostle Paul who gave us a third of the New Testament, and his friend Barnabas, an unsung hero. He actually appears 25 times in the book of Acts, five times in the epistles, an amazing leader in the life of the early church. And these two, they did a missionary journey together. They planted churches, they preached the gospel, amazing success, and they took with them a young man called John Mark. He's Barnabas's cousin. However, John Mark messed up during the tour, and uh, he deserted the group, and um, that didn't go well. And now, these two, Paul and Barnabas, are planning a second follow-up trip, and here's what happens. Sometime later, Acts 15, 36, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And then in the Good News Bible version of Ephesians 4:31, we read this. Get rid of all bitterness, passion, and anger. No more shouting or insults. No more hateful feelings of any sort. Instead, be kind and tender-hearted to one another and forgive one another as God has forgiven you through Christ. If you've been watching the news, you know that back in my home country, we've been having a three-day party, party, and it has been amazing. We, Kay and I have been watching it on TV. We went home last night from the service, and we watched the party at the palace, three hours. It was absolutely incredible. We cried. It was emotional. And all of this, because we haven't been able to be in England for those celebrations. It's all brought back memories of uh, an encounter that I had a few years ago with Her Majesty. And here's a photograph um, of 
that event, I just told her how we drive on the other side of the road here, and she was rather amused by that. The late Prince Philip, he thought it was hilarious, and uh, we had a really nice little chat together. And none of that is true. None of it. I've never met her. Someone photoshopped my head onto somebody else's body. It is a false image. I think sometimes when we look back at the early church, we get a false image. We Photoshop onto the biblical account the idea that in the early church, they, they just bounced from miracle to miracle. They were always in harmony and, and unity. They'd go out and preach the gospel and come home and sit around the fire and sing Kumbaya, and it was all really beautiful, and the opposite is true. You see, the early church was birthed into a culture that was totally divided, fragmented. There were divisions between Jew and Gentile. Division is the understatement. They hated each other. The Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. And then there were the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the ordinary people. There were divisions between them because the Pharisees saw themselves as superior the word Pharisee, parushai, the separate ones. Divisions. There were divisions between Jews and Samaritans, so much so that a good Jew would walk many miles longer to get to a destination to avoid even going through Samaritan country, which is why when Jesus wanted to really shock people with his teaching, he told a story about a good Samaritan, because you see, in those days, the thinking was, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. And then everybody hated the Romans, because they were the invaders, the occupiers, the oppressors. The early church was birthed in a totally divided culture, and at times, the early church experienced unhealthy conflict and division. If you doubt that, look at the book of Acts, where they often had to gather together for conferences to resolve difficult issues. Look at Corinthians, where people were following this leader, or that leader, or maybe this leader. Divisions. Look at the Jesus team. The team that Jesus led, there were conflicts, and no wonder You've got a tax collector called Matthew who worked for the government. And then sitting over there is Simon the Zealot who hated the government and would have happily planted a dagger in the back of Matthew before he met Jesus. Conflict. And specifically in this story, it's Paul and Barnabas, and they have this argument, and it really is an argument. It's not a discussion. The Greek word that is used speaks of violent emotion, jabbing at one another with words, sharp words exchanged. Today, in our culture, 
over the last couple of years especially, there have been a lot of sharp words exchanged. Robert Shrum, who's a political commentator, said, too often in America today, and it's a global issue, not just an American one, but he said, too often in America today, we are trapped in an angry public square where those on the other side are seen not as opponents, but as enemies. And the loser, in effect, tries to burn down the stadium. This is a fateful danger to democracy, fragmented. And it's not a, a new problem. Back in George Washington's day, they used to have a phrase to describe a divisive attitude or spirit. They called it a party spirit. In his farewell address in September 1796, Washington said, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, ferments occasionally riot and insurrection. This nothing new, this. And in churches across the globe, and in churches in the USA, there have been a lot of sharp words. There are hot buttons that if you mention them, you're going to get a reaction. I'm going to mention some, and just by my mentioning them, not even commenting on them, someone's going to be irritated. Hot buttons like racism, gender issues, bathrooms, guns, masks, vaccines, Biden, Trump, Republican, Democrat, environment, LGBTQ+, war, abortion, border control, refugees, big government, small government. I'm glad I got to the end of that list. And my purpose this weekend is not to offer some brief comment about any of those issues, but to identify some hot buttons. And we can exchange sharp words, and then our motive is about winning. I'm right, you're wrong, and my duty is to set you right, we think. And over the last couple of years, people have left churches angry. Families have been split. I could take you to a situation on the West Coast where a man was dying and he so violently disagreed with his daughter's view on masks and vaccines that he cut her off, refused to talk to her, cut her out of his will. Finally, just before he passed away, they had managed to have a conversation. But that's often where we've lived. And there's a pressure to take sides. Well, what's your opinion about this? And then you're condemned if you don't have an opinion. And in this kind of situation, pastors have been burned out and caught in the crossfire. I, I've, you know, I check Facebook because I like to see what people are having for breakfast and... I've seen posts like this on Facebook. If your pastor's not preaching on this, leave the church. Now, I share all of this wanting to make it clear. I'm so grateful to be part of the Timberline family. But this has been 
broadly for many leaders a difficult time. Now, most pastors have moments when they want to quit because most of us in whatever we're doing broadly, we have those days, don't we? One of those days. I remember having one of those days when I was church planting many years ago in England. We had a lady in our church who had a supernatural gift of complaining. She was spectacular. One day she came to me, she said, Pastor Jeff, everyone's leaving the church. Now that panics a pastor. Everyone's leaving the church. I said, oh really, tell me about that. She said, well, lots of people are leaving the church. I said, oh really, wow. Uh, well, tell me more. She said, well, two or three people are leaving the church. I said, well, exactly who? Because I'd love to talk with them. She said, I am leaving the church. And I went home, and I know you'll find this difficult to believe, but I was angry. Thanks for your support. And uh, I went in the house, and uh, my wife Kay was ironing, ironing. And I walked in, I slammed the door, and I, I said, that's it, I'm going to quit. I'm going to write my letter of resignation. And she's, she just carried on arming. Like, she doesn't understand the gravity of this situation. So I said, I'm going to write my letter of resignation. She looked up and smiled and said, you don't even know how to spell resignation. Thirty-eight percent of pastors in America have considered completely quitting in the last year. Why do I tell you that? Because we have that problem here? No. Because I'm looking for some sympathy for our particular group of people, pastors. No, I just want us to be aware of the crossfire that has happened. So, with 15 minutes or so left, we still have seven points which is creating great tension and fear. So let's dive in. First of all, let's know this. Conflict is healthy and neutral. Conflict is healthy and neutral. The issue is not conflict, it's the way we handle conflict because unity is not uniformity. We don't all share the same views about everything. Hey, listen. If you ever become part of a church where everyone agrees about everything, run for your life. Because <laughs> you just got into a cult. George Patton said, if everyone is thinking alike, then somebody is not thinking. We met at the foot of the cross. And some of us would not be in the same room except for Jesus. Conflict is neutral. It's part of life. It's how we learn in many cases. And the absence of conflict leads to resentment. We can be a people who can air our perspectives with kindness. Do we have an expectation that everyone will agree with us about everything, because we generally think we're right, mainly because we are the ones who listen to ourselves the most. The internal dialogue that is going on in our heads is rather convincing. 
And then we get around people who agree with us. And they endorse us in our views and they tell us that, yeah, we're the ones who are right. It's just those other people. Conflict is healthy and neutral. Secondly, the most beautiful relationships can be shattered by mishandled conflict. I've seen it. And it's here. Barnabas and Paul, formerly known as Saul, had been great friends and colleagues in ministry. When Saul, who was a persecutor, became a Christian, the church freaked out because they thought he might be a spy. And so here's what we read in Acts chapter 9. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. You see, Barnabas stepped up and vouched for Saul who became Paul. It was Barnabas who went to Tarsus where Paul probably was for 10 years, his hidden years after his conversion. It was Barnabas who said to Paul, let's do ministry. These, these guys were long-term friends, an incredible missionary journey together, and also their relationship had been weathered by conflict previously. You can read about it in Galatians chapter 2. They had clashed before, but they'd come out of that as brothers and friends. But now, they don't pray together. And that's weird because the early church constantly engaged with conflict, with prayer and fasting and conversation. They don't ask anybody in to help mediate in their conflict. And that's weird because they'd acted as mediators in the early church. They handle it badly. That's the fact. And so it ends. And Barnabas stomps off with his cousin John Mark and heads to Cyprus again. And Paul recruits Silas and made his way to Syria and Cecilia, or Cilicia. God redeems the situation. Now you've got two apostolic teams rather than one, but it's a mess. How do we do when we're in conflict? Do we handle it with health? Or do we just react? Thirdly, let's know that opposing perspectives can stem from the same root passion. You see, Barnabas had a passion for people, particularly those on the outside. John Mark, oh bless his heart, he didn't mean it. He's young, give him another break. Paul had a passion for people too. Let's have the very best team to preach the gospel. They both had the same passion, but sometimes passion fuels conflict. And then we forget who we are. They forgot that they were brothers in Christ. When I first became a Christian, people in our little church in London, they'd call me Brother Jeff. Brother Je I, felt like, I always felt like a monk when they called me that. Brother Jeff. Although the brother-sister thing is really handy, especially when you forget someone's name. You're like, hey, uh, good to see you, um, uh, brother. It's great. But the truth is, Without sounding like Sister Sledge, we are 
family. And somehow in this moment, fueled by passion, they forgot that this is not an organization, an institution. This is part of the church of Christ. We're brothers and sisters. Fourthly, when we don't speak the truth in love, we don't speak truth. Let me repeat that. When we don't speak the truth in love, we don't speak truth. Ephesians 4, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Somebody asked me this weekend, what do you mean by that? Surely truth is truth, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. But the tone with which we speak changes the communication of the truth and can distort it. So if I stand here and I say, we are family, or I stand here and say, we are family, I just change the message by the tone with which I delivered the statement. Why is it that some Christians seem to think that they're supposed to be loving and kind unless they're talking about politics. And then, it's okay, you can just leave all that behind because that's politics. When we don't speak the truth in love, we don't speak truth. Man, everyone is really quiet this morning. <laughs> Number five, there's more than one way to shout. And shouting creates sound bites. When we think about shouting, Paul says no more shouting. We can think of a guy with a megaphone, you know, just shouting people down. But there's more than one way to shout. Ellen Candle said in unhealthy conflict, one person or group may attempt to assert power over another by talking over them, blaming, claiming superiority, or putting the other person down with negative statements. Unhealthy conflict rarely leads to a positive resolution. And, and here's what happens when we're shouting. We start to exchange sound bites. And we lob volleys of sound bites around. But that doesn't allow any opportunity to grow or dialogue or understand or gain perspective. And then we start to smear the people from who have different views. And we attack the person rather than interrogate the issue. Or we may run. Well, I'm just going to, I just, I can't, I can't be around people who don't agree with me about that. Or here's what some Christians do. They say, well, I just believe what the Bible says. I just take the Bible literally. Oh, really? Oh, so when your son is unruly, you take him out and stone him. You see, taking the Bible seriously is not the same as taking it literally. Are you suggesting, Pastor Jeff, anything less than a highest view of Scripture? Absolutely not. But Scripture deserves our study. If I take the book of Revelation literally, then there's a sheep in heaven called Jesus, the Lamb of God. But there isn't a sheep in heaven. It is a prophetic, apocalyptic picture, and our interpretation is required. And sometimes others have different interpretations than us, and we can learn and grow. And if our perspective doesn't stand up to interrogation, it's not very substantial. 
And then what happens is that people turn minors into majors. I was preaching in a church in London a couple of years ago, and I quoted Eugene Peterson's The Message during my sermon. I got an email from a guy, a British guy, and uh, he said, um, you quoted the message in your sermon. He said, I hate that. And he said, because you quoted the message, you are not a Christian. And he said, I watched you on video, and you're obviously not getting any younger, so you probably need to repent and get right with God quick. God bless. <laughs> and I went home and I talked to Kay and she said, you don't even know how to spell resignation. <laughs> There's more than one way to shout. Number six, love calls us to listen. To, to listen. Paul Tournier said, listen to the conversations of the world between nations as well as between couples. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. James 1.19, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Ernest Hemingway complained simply by saying, most people never listen. And it's been said that listening is the silent shape of caring. Let's listen. Some Christians seem to think that listening is a sign of compromise. But it's not. Quick to listen. Well, the last thing is this. Let's be respectful towards those that we disagree with. Let's be respectful. On three occasions, the disciples of Jesus had major unhealthy conflict in their team. And on all three occasions, the issue was, who is the greatest? Now, we might say, well, we'd never fall into that trap. That's complete silliness. But we can so easily. When we say, I know better because I'm greater in understanding. You are foolish because I'm greater in wisdom. You are wrong because I'm greater in knowing what is right. I am a true Christian more spiritual than you because I am greater in godliness. We're saying, I'm greater. For the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, we never read that they got together again. But a couple of years after the conflict, the Apostle Paul wrote about Barnabas with warmth. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? And he mentions Barnabas, ironically, in connection with John Mark in his letter to the Colossians. Respect. They disagreed. But he continued to show kindness and respect. As I conclude, I want to share a story that I shared here five or six years ago, which is kind of a summary, I think, of an attitude that we can take. These are words from Richard Seltzer. He is a surgeon who had just conducted a procedure and he writes about it very movingly in his book, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. Here's what he says. 
I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. As the surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight. Isolated from me, the moment is a private one. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly. The young woman speaks to me. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say. It will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze, for one is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not going to have you turn to the person next to you. But surely it is a metaphor for the way that we can engage with each other accommodating, yes, our own perspectives and opinions, but forbearing with each other, being patient, listening, long-suffering, graciousness, attitudinally together. I'm so grateful for this Timberline family. It truly is a pleasure and a joy to serve here. May we, in a broken, fragmented culture, model something more beautiful. And everybody said, and everybody said just a little louder. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so patient with us, endlessly, wonderfully gracious. 
Lord, in a world where there is often so much shouting, may we in our diversity model something beautiful. Show us, not just in church life, but in our marriages, in our friendships, in the workplace, show us how to model that beautiful life. As we just pause in prayer, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you can begin that journey today. And our prayer team will be here at the end. I'll be back at the Welcome Center with other members of our team. We'd love to help you start that journey. Let's just whisper to the Lord what we'd like to whisper to the Lord. So thank you for hearing us, Father. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might live beautifully for your glory. We agree together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.